welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Sarah Schubert, and I'm a resident in the Integrated Cardiothoracic Surgery Program at the University of Virginia. I am here today with Dr. Irving Crone, Professor and Chair of the Department of Surgery here at the University of Virginia. Dr. Crone has been a practicing cardiovascular surgeon for over 30 years with a busy clinical practice, as well as a prolific researcher with over 500 publications and presentations to his name. He has particular expertise in the mitral valve, and today we're going to talk a bit about functional mitral valve disease. Hi, this is Irv Crone. I'm happy to be here, and uh, we're particularly proud to be working with Sarah Schubert. So we'll start with a case scenario. A 73-year-old man is referred to your clinic from his cardiologist with a six-month history of increasing dyspnea on exertion. His past medical history is significant for coronary artery disease with an inferior end stemi approximately six years ago hypertension and hyperlipidemia, type 2 diabetes, and mild COPD with a remote history of smoking. His physical exam is only notable for appearing younger than his stated age and 2 plus bilateral lower extremity edema. How would you initially approach this patient and what sort of details in the history and physical exam are most pertinent to the development of your differential diagnosis? Well, I think it's important to note that he has certainly a history of myocardial infarction and that he had done well till about six months ago. So he's not been chronically ill. Uh, clearly, the, in, the previous inferior myocardial infarction did not affect him initially, so something new is going on. And so I would be thinking that he has some issues that related to his coronary disease. I'd want to find out if he's developed valvular disease. It could be related to his previous myocardial infarction causing mitral regurgitation, also, in addition, he could have certainly developed aortic stenosis in the meantime, uh, which is not infrequent in the presence of previous coronary disease. Finally, I would want to make sure he hasn't developed further troubles with his coronary disease that is giving shortness of breath. Most, many patients don't have anginal equivalents. They have shortness of breath as their, as their first sign of angina, and I'd want to find out did he have further uh, difficulties, particularly in his left main system. Okay. The patient's transthoracic echo is significant for severe anteriorly directed mitral regurgitation with prolapse of the P2 leaflet and an EF of 55% with some diastolic dysfunction. There is no significant aortic stenosis. With this history and these echo findings, would you consider the patient for surgery and why? Uh, yes, I think I would. So here, here's a a patient who clearly is short of breath, he has prolapse. People with ischemic mitral valves have normal valve uh, structure but have ventricular issues that cause the valve leaflets to come apart. So if he's symptomatic with P2 prolapse, then he, I would think, be an excellent candidate for surgical repair. What other diagnostic tests and imaging would you like to have completed before proceeding to the operating room with this patient? Well, he has a history of coronary disease, but even if he did not, anyone over age 50 probably should have a coronary angiogram. Uh, it'd be critically important to find out, does he have more coronary disease, and what else do you have to do at the time of operation? In addition, uh, we believe that most people who have 
uh, atherosclerosis certainly have a risk for having calcification of the aorta. And I would want to get a CT scan to make sure that's not the issue. We can markedly reduce the risk of stroke if we know the aortic anatomy ahead of time. What workup findings would make you hesitate or even refuse to take a patient with functional mitral regurgitation to the operating room? So he has prolapse, and it's, uh, it's very, very rare to have prolapse uh, in the abs in with functional disease. The only time prolapse does occur if they actually have a papillary muscle uh, infarction and therefore disruption that would cause prolapse. And those are usual surgical emergencies. So we're going to talk about two pieces of this, whether he has what we do for degenerative disease and what we will do for functional disease. The key question is uh, what would prompt me to refuse such a patient uh, in the operating room and basically if he had a totally calcified aorta or if the patient had significant liver dysfunction, cirrhosis, or severe renal failure that would certainly increase the risks. If he had prohibitive pulmonary functions, that would be the case. But from an anatomic standpoint, if he has shortness of breath and degenerative disease, then I think a mitral valve repair is legitimate. So why don't we talk about his anatomy and then we'll go into the treatment depending on what we see. Okay. The patient undergoes a left heart cath, which demonstrates a chronically occluded RCA, 80% proximal LAD disease, and 90% occlusion of OM1. He has no significant carotid disease and carotid duplex. PFTs demonstrate only mildly obstructive lung disease and CT scan is unremarkable. He appears to be a reasonable surgical candidate without prohibitive risk factors. What operation would you plan to do and what are some of the advantages and disadvantages? So I, I think we should talk about this uh, from the standpoint, what would we do if he had degenerative disease and finally what would we do if he has functional disease? So if he has degenerative disease, there's excellent data that would suggest a mitral valve repair will give him a longer lifespan than a mitral valve replacement. That data is clear. Mitral valve repair in our hands typically relates to uh, limited resection or cordal uh, or new cordal placement. And these are very reproducible operations with a 98% chance of repair. I would say that the risk is low and he ought to do well. We would certainly bypass all his coronary arteries at the same time. Now, however, if he had functional disease, that is, the mitral leaflets are normal, but he has uh, evidence of, uh, usually in most cases, a posterior infarct and, uh, and basically some restriction of his junction of his posterior and anterior leaflet, so-called P3A3 area. That's a different story. And, and, there's, and the data is reasonably clear at this point in time. There was a large study uh, that I was part of from the Cardiothoracic Surgical Network that looked at people with severe MR from, and functional um, and ischemic mitral regurgitation. And, and the data was that repair did not do as well as replacement. That is, the replacement group did as well in terms of mortality which surprised many of us, but more importantly, it was more durable, at least over the first two years. The majority of patients, I would say 60% of patients who had repair ended up having moderate disease, moderate re residual regurgitation after several months in most cases. Now the caveat to all this is that the ones who got repair 
and did not recur did best of all. And I think we can now predict which of those patients we can repair. That is, if they don't have a posterior aneurysm and they don't have severe restriction of the posterior leaflet, then repair is still a legitimate approach. Now, the repair is very specific. One must reduce the size of the annulus by two sizes, and one should use a complete rigid or semi-rigid ring. That data is clear as can be. So if one's going to repair, you've got to repair with rules. Now, if it's degenerative disease, it doesn't matter if you use a flexible or rigid ring, and it doesn't matter if it's complete or incomplete. The point is the results are very predictable and excellent. So the approach is different depending on the anatomy of the mitral valve. So now that we've decided that the patient would benefit from some sort of coronary revascularization and some sort of intervention on the mitral valve, how would you proceed with the operation, including cannulation, order of operations, access to the mitral valve? In our situation, we use a single arterial cannula, two venous cannulae because you have better retraction. We would use an internal mammary for the LAD because of the longevity. I think it's appropriate probably in this case to use vein grafts for the other vessels at his age. And then uh, we would do the coronaries first after cross-clamping the aorta, and uh, that is do the distal anastomoses, and then approach the mitral valve. By and large, we approach the mitral valve through a left atrial approach. There are some situations where a biatrial approach is better, but it's rare that we have to do that if it's functional disease and we made a decision to do a repair, we would uh, reduce the size of the annulus by two sizes. If we made a decision to do a replacement, that is, if the patient had a posterior uh, or so-called basal aneurysm, then we would do a cordal sparing mitral valve replacement. That is, we would keep all the cords intact, resect a little bit of the anterior leaflet, and put a valve in. We tend to prefer tissue valves, even though the longevity is not great, probably about 12 to 15 years, but, but in most patients, this is all that would suffice. Okay. How would your approach to this patient change if he had only moderate mitral regurgitation or no prolapse of the leaflets? So the question is what to do if you have ischemic moderate mitral regurgitation. And I, th I think the data is pretty clear here. There was a second randomized study from the network that looked at patients who had moderate mitral regurgitation in the presence of coronary artery disease. And it demonstrated that both groups of patients, if you had coronary bypass alone or coronary bypass plus mitral repair, the results were pretty much similar with a slightly higher neurologic event rate if you opened the left atrium. It didn't seem to be that big a deal. The stroke rate was pretty equivalent, but there were some neurologic changes. So if the patient comes in moderate mitral regurgitation and, and uh, relatively you know, small heart, I think coronary bypass alone is enough. These patients do well. There are a subgroup of patients that we don't have data for because the study was not powered that way. But if the patient's main present presentation has been multiple episodes of heart failure, then I don't think it hurts any to put on a mitral valve ring. Uh, if one had to go purely by the book, coronary bypass alone is enough. Okay. What are some of the potential intraoperative complications about which you are most concerned? So a lot depends. You know, obviously, if a patient had very poor ventricular function, you'd be concerned about coming off bypass. 
our myocardial protection strategies these days are so good that it's rare that that happens. There are always the complications of bleeding, but I think the main thing that we have to be concerned about these days are neurologic events, particularly if there's a calcified aorta. It be very. There is a terrible disease called posterior ventricular dis- disruption when one removes all the papillary muscles and leaflets, but we never see that with this cortical sparing technique. The majority of our patients do very well with these operations. At, at the network, the, in the patients who had coronary bypass plus mitral repair, in the moderate group, the mortality for the operation is 1.3%. So we can do these operations in, even in people with poor function. They have required usual excellent care postoperatively, arrhythmias can occur, but the bottom line is that uh, my expectation is most of these patients will leave the hospital doing well. You t- mentioned arrhythmias. What are some of the other complications that you would perhaps see in the postoperative period with these patients? There's a less than 1% have bleeding, probably half percent have infection. Um, there are some people who have respiratory issues, particularly if they have underlying lung disease. Very few go on to have renal failure. It does occur in the few percent of patients because, again, the majority of these have vascular disease. But I think those are the basic things. You know, certainly rare things can occur, but fortunately they occur rarely. Okay. Approximately four weeks after surgery, you see the patient back in outpatient clinic. What are your expectations for his postoperative progress? Are there any specific details in their interval history or your physical exam that would be particularly concerning to you? I think, you know, at four weeks, the patient should be pretty much back to normal. You know, it should be over most of the pain, most of the issues, should be able to start developing a cardiac rehab and going on with their lives. Now, if uh, they had a repair and I heard a murmur, I'd be concerned. Could there be a ring disruption or early failure of the repair? And those patients mandate an echo right away. I think that's clear. There is, there are a few patients who develop postcardiotomy syndrome. That is, they, they develop pleurisy and pain, and even can develop pericardial effusion. So, if indeed they're a little short of breath, and particularly if they have jugular venous distension, I'd be concerned about that and get get an echo again. Can't hurt to do that. However, in the majority of situations, I think these folks are going to do well, and uh, and usually with our blessing, they go back to the referring cardiologist and see us again only if you have further difficulties. Great. That brings us to the end of our discussion with Dr. Irv Krohn on functional mitral valve disease for the Thoracic Surgery Residents Association. Thank you, Dr. Krohn, for taking the time to share your expertise and insights on this topic today. Thanks, Sarah. It's been a pleasure to do this, and uh, I enjoy that.